Welcome to the 3D Parent Podcast. My name is Bevan Walters, your host and founder of The 3D Parent. I'm a certified parent coach and have spent the last decade living my calling in life, helping parents navigate the tough stuff like tantrums, sibling conflict, screen time overload, and managing the transition into the teenage years. My purpose is to provide you with the tools you need as a parent to lead with dignity, direction, and deep connection in your family relationships. My goal in creating the 3D Parent Podcast is to inform, empower, and increase confidence in parents so they can trust their instincts and make the best decisions possible for their families. For these reasons, I've rated this podcast FPEO for parents' ears only. Parenting is challenging, but you don't have to do it alone. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the 3D Parent Podcast. Today, I'm going to be tackling the topic of race and parenting and specifically getting a Black mother's perspective. And for this, of course, I have a guest. My guest today is none other than Nashe Clark, who is a New Jersey-based mother of two and president and founder of NVC Consulting. She received her undergraduate degree in journalism at Northwestern University and her MBA at the Kellogg School of Business, also at Northwestern University. Nishe launched NVC Consulting nearly two decades ago to fill a void between strategic insights, creativity, and research ingenuity. She specializes in new product launches, brand development, handling sensitive topics, and research with underserved markets. And since the COVID-19 pandemic, Nishe took advantage of her increased time at home and turned her passion for baking into a little startup bakery called Comfort Cakes Bake Shop, making delectable sweets based on three-generation-old family recipes. Welcome, Nishe. Thank you for having me, Bevan. All right. So before we dive into the topic at hand for the episode, I thought it would be kind of fun to share some of the background on how we know each other, which goes back many, many decades. <laughs> also, <laughs> Don't say I wanted that. to share just a couple of like fun memories that pop out to me. So Nishay and I um, knew each other from school because we ended up at the same elementary school just for sixth grade. And I came to the same school in fifth grade and she came in sixth grade. And I have a couple of funny, distinct memories of you, Nishé, in that sixth grade year. One funny, one not so funny. I'm going to start off with a not so funny memory, which was when we as sixth graders all watched the Challenger Space yeah. launch and Krista McAuliffe and all the other astronauts in that just tragedy. And then a week or so later, we all kind of gathered to watch the memorial together and I remember I obviously barely had gotten to know you. That happened the first year we'd been in school together and we weren't even in the same class. But I remember us all as these kind of like sixth graders trying to process this tragedy, kind of going onto the playground, immediately following, watching this memorial. And you were in just utter tears and despair. And I remember you just looked at me and whoever was standing near you and just saying, my heart breaks for the families. I'm just so sad for the families. Do you have distinct memories of that as well? You know, to be honest, my more distinct memory is actually watching the explosion. Mm -hmm. I definitely remember that. I remember seeing the look of panic on the teacher's oh, yeah. face. Like, oh my gosh, what am I going to do with this room full of, what were we, 11? Yeah. Like babies watching. Yeah. Babies watching this happen and them quickly trying to wheel the TV out. <laughs> yes, the TV <laughs> on the wheels. <laughs> the TV was yeah. on wheels, yeah. on the cart. Yeah, that's what I remember. And I remember being shocked and I remember being really tearful. And I do remember thinking, oh my gosh, what about the families? Because for yeah. me, it was definitely all. Yeah, about and that. I hadn't even moved on to that part of processing. I think I was still in shock. And I hadn't even gone that far to think. I think I was still like, you know, maybe processing what we'd seen take place and um, not necessarily the impact on all those involved. I think I was probably still focused on the impact on me. <laughs> and, mm -hmm. you know, it's one of those moments. Like we all have them. Every generation has those moments that you just don't forget. And that's yeah. one of them for our generation, for sure. The other memory I have of that year, that sixth grade year was funny. I remember we were sitting at the same lunch table. There's a handful of us. And I had somehow smuggled a copy to school of my mother's book, Clan of the Clan Cave. Clan of the Cave Bear. Yes, you were 
this too. Oh, I remember this distinctively. I've told my girlfriends about it here and reading the dirty yes. bit. And I remember breaking it out. I had smuggled it out and I'd read the parts that were completely shocking. And I remember Randall like- Lars thrusting manhood. Oh, yes. I mean, seriously, there's so much manhood talk and we knew what it was by then. And I remember specifically you being like, oh, I really think you should put that away. You had a real strong moral compass and you knew what we were doing was wrong. And you were like, I don't think you should be reading that at lunch. This is not appropriate, Bevan. <laughs> it was so funny. And I think it's hilarious you remember totally that. I forgot that it was you who brought the book. Oh. I just remembered someone who brought the book. And oh. I so vividly remembered. I think at some point in time, we even ducked underneath the table or something oh, yeah. to read yep. it. And my mother was reading it. And I had asked my mother, because I'm a very avid reader, and I would read anything that she left on the shelf. And she said, no, not this one. <laughs> not this one. And you know I loved said. and respected and was also slightly terrified of my mother. So <laughs> I, I was not going to read that book. Yeah. And so I think that maybe that was part of why when I brought it, I was reading the parts. You were like, oh, I'm not supposed to be doing this. Uh, this is... <laughs> but just read a little bit more. Awesome. So then we both ended up at the same seven through 12 middle school, high school in Los Angeles, California. And the one that we all referred to as the purple penitentiary lovingly and maybe not so lovingly. Mm -hmm. And two real distinct memories of Unishay that jump out at me. One, of course, was your strength on the speech and debate team and also the strength of which you would speak when announcing anything having to do with speech and debate team at our assemblies of the school, that you were definitely known for that. And then the other bit was more on a personal level when we both ended up taking the senior English elective Black Writers, and how that was a really powerful experience for me to take that class as an elective and the class, which was, I can't remember exactly how the demographics broke down, but I would say probably most of the students in our class that were Black were in that class and then a handful mm -hmm. of other students. Right. And I remember very distinctly feeling in that class like, wow, I, I, have a, I feel like a different purpose in this class. And it was to be largely a listener, largely someone to kind of gain a lot of perspective from other people's points of view. And feeling both uncomfortable, but also really intrigued by the material we read. Although our school did an okay job bringing to light readers and different voices in our generalized education English program. From my perspective, you might have a different one. I felt like that class being exclusively focused on Black writers and Black voices was really a gift that, frankly, I wish everybody had taken, not just yeah. as a, like an elective last semester or senior year. But specifically with you, I remember one of our assignments was to do a painting. And I believe it was of the book Beloved. And uh, we had to paint a certain scene. And I remember painting the scene and being incredibly self-conscious about bringing it into the class because I didn't know if the way in which I drew the characters, I was not an artist. <laughs> I mean, at least a, not a visual artist. And I didn't yeah. know if I would draw characters in a way that would like I don't know, not be in any way based on reality of, you know, it was imaginary. We didn't have a movie yet, right? So right. I was really especially concerned that the colors of paint I chose for the skin of the characters in the scene were going to be, again, like anywhere close to the reality of a shade that mm -hmm. would have been that of the characters. And I remember bringing the painting into the class and like putting up on the wall where we were supposed to display them and being like, oh my gosh, I feel really uncomfortable right <laughs> now. And you were standing right next to me and you looked and go, oh, that's really good. I really like that. And I remember looking at my painting and I looked at you and I had this distinct memory of looking at your skin tone and looking at my painting and being like, oh, Oh my gosh, like it was closely matching your particular skin tone, of course, as a rainbow of skin tones. But I remember thinking it was such a gift that you were saying next to me, you commented on it. And I was like, oh my God, you know, I was just felt so uncomfortable, which I've come to learn is like part of my job is to feel uncomfortable all the time in times when I am kind of acknowledging you know, my privilege, my place, the fact that like here I was in this one class at the very end of my high school experience about black writers. And I was like, oh my gosh, I feel a little uncomfortable about the paint color choice and how that was like so irrelevant, but at the same time impactful and something that umbered years right. later. Do you have memories from that class? Well, I think it's both because, you know, for me, I think I recognize 
you tried, Mm -hmm. that you wanted to do something Mm -hmm. genuine. And that's always been my experience with people that I found to be kind of of good heart Mm -hmm. or good intent when it comes to issues Mm -hmm. of race. Because at the end of the day, we're not all going to get it right. And there's, you know, there's intersectionality amongst Mm -hmm. Blacks Mm -hmm. as well. And, you know, colorism issues and different issues, you know, so everyone's got their stuff. But what I think I, as an African-American woman, and I can't speak for all African-American women, but I can say, you know, most of my Black mom friends or my Black friends appreciate an effort, Mm -hmm. attempt, and understanding because there's ignorance by lack of having information. I am ignorant to calculus, never got to calculus in college, won't ever pretend that I can do calculus. But then there is ignorance by choice in that I refuse to acknowledge something else. I acknowledge that calculus exists. (laughs) If it's something that's quite important, I will figure out, you know, or allow someone to teach it to me. But to deny that calculus exists to me is to like the denial that racism exists. Mm -hmm. They both exist. You may not understand it, but it's there. Absolutely. And also that it's there, not just in history books and in the past, Mm -hmm. but right now in the present. And that kind of dovetails nicely into kind of our topic at hand today And, you know, we reconnected over social media years ago when Facebook was brand new and have kind of like, Mm -hmm. you know, observed from afar through social media, um, each other's families. And I remember one Halloween, maybe four, three or four years ago, both our daughters had the exact same unicorn costumes for Halloween. And that was so adorable to find that connection. But up to this point, our like reconnection had just been via this very kind of like surface level right. Facebook social media kind of observation of different people that at one point in time were in our lives. So, you know, during this period of time that we've been in a pandemic and then fell right into the current climate in terms of Floyd's murder and the reaction to it, the reaction to something that has been there all along, but there's suddenly this new awakening, particularly for white people and particularly for people of color who are non-Black, kind of wanting to kind of take a look at this and buy all the books and just dive in head first with a lot of fervor and a lot of, you know, good intent, like you said, effort, but like kind of like, why now? It's interesting. And maybe we'll dig in there a little deeper. But I recently did an episode about talking to your kids about race which was really intended for white parents who, like myself, have found it always to be a struggle to even talk about race. And I went into that in a lot of detail in that podcast episode, but I knew that I was not anywhere close to being done with the topic of addressing race and racism and how to raise anti-racist kids on my podcast. And I wasn't sure what I wanted to cover next, but I knew that I wanted to include and share my mic with, in particular, an African-American mother, such as yourself. And I was thinking about people in my community and school and people I knew through my work. And I was thinking about fellow podcasters that had, you know, on various platforms you're connecting on, but I wasn't sure who to ask. And then right as I was going through this process, I was scrolling through Facebook and I saw a post that you shared along with an Instagram graphic by momfully.you. And I'll put a link to the graphic in my show notes so anybody who's curious about this um, could see what you posted. But it was entitled The Invisible Load of Motherhood, Mothering Black Children. And I read and saw the graphics included there. And I also read what you wrote about overhearing your son speak to your family's pet parrot about his color. And I was like, okay, I've got to reach out to Nishé. I have to bring your voice and perspective to my podcast because there's so much for me and my listeners to learn from you and your perspective. So I want to jump in just right there with that. Can you share with us what led you to make that post about the hidden burden of Black mothers and maybe share a little bit about the story alluded to with your son and your parrot? (laughs) So 
When I saw the graphic, it talked about the ways in which as a Black mother, you have additional burdens. So you're worried about talking about race, but you're also worried about talking about it so much and taking away your child's childhood. You're worried about them going to school and just being a person of color. If they get in trouble, is it twice as much trouble as the other kid? Mm -hmm. You're worried about them being hurt or shot or, you know, all of the other things to a level that is greater than, you know, typical white moms. And when I saw it and when I thought about, you know, some of the things I'd been through, it'd been a challenging year, you know, in terms of some different things with the kids. And I just was overwhelmed by it. And I said, yes, this is such a great articulation of what I try and communicate to my friends. I live in a predominantly affluent white suburb in New Jersey. You know, I'd say if I had 10 friends here, nine are white. <laughs> um, and this is typical. I grew up in a white neighborhood. We went to school together, Bevan. And as you recall, there weren't so many brown folks at either of the schools that we attended. You know, I have been raised within the walls of white privilege, but still being a Black person. And that really shook me. And I've had a lot of conversations with my kids about race, especially my oldest daughter. We have, she's seen it. She's felt it. There was a series of writings on the walls in the public schools utilizing the N-word. When she was in fifth grade, another child drew her in blackface in an art class. And not just any blackface, the classic piccaninny blackface with the nappy hair and the big ballooned red lips and the black face. And she's a very honey-colored, medium-toned child. And she didn't even know what that visual meant because she had not seen it. But she knew that it made her feel ugly. Mm -hmm. And I knew that that child clearly was in a household where that image was on display or viewed because how else could a 10, 11-year-old come to that image? That's not coincidence. And so we talked about race and I've talked to them about not feeling like they are less than, never feeling like they have to change who they are. Our hair is our hair. Our color is our color. The way we laugh, the way we walk, the way our perspective about things is beautiful and wonderful and genuine and they don't have to change that. And there will be some people who don't like them simply for those factors and they just can't be our friends. And there are some people that will have lots of questions. It's not our job to educate the world, but if we find the questions to be genuine or from a good place, why not share and help someone else to be more exposed and less ignorant person? So circling back to my son. So we have a macaw a very blue hyacinth macaw, I think the movie Rio, that's the type of bird this, my parrot was raised off of. Anderson has become especially close to him during COVID. He said he's his comfort animal. He likes hanging out with him, walking around, pretending he's a pirate. And I had told Anderson, not anything really about George Floyd, but he had heard some other kids talking about race on the street. And he said that there was a kid who looked at him funny a lot and he wasn't sure if it was because he's black. And we're the only Black family in kind of our little section of, you know, this little community where we are right here. And I said, Anderson, never let anyone else make you feel bad. You belong here. This is our house. We belong where we are. So this is your street. And you ride up and down this street. And it doesn't matter whether you're Black, white, or anything else. This is where you live and you deserve to be here. And then a few minutes later, I heard him go and tell Maxie, our parrot, Maxie, this is your house and you live here too. And just because you're blue doesn't mean that you're any less than anyone else or that you're not as smart. Being blue is special and it's great and you should totally love being blue. Wow. What did that do to you and your mama heart right there? In one regard, I was proud and in the other regard, I was tearful because these are the things that we have to think about. Yeah. And... He's nine and I don't want him to have to think about these things. I hate that we have to have these conversations. I hate the fact that 
as he gets older and it's coming fast, there will be a time where I have to add additional concerns. You know, he's got pretty free reign on this block, but we live on a block with mostly little white girls. His age, but there's, gosh, two sets of twins. Another, I mean, there's probably like seven or eight little white girls. And right now he's, you know, everyone's harmless buddy, but he's getting bigger every day. And when he goes to school and even when he comes home, will there come a time where suddenly he's a scary black man, but he's only 12 or 13. And that's so sad because right now, the first thing out of everyone's mouth when they see him is, oh my gosh, he's so cute. I mean, it's not just me. He is a really cute kid, but he's going to start looking like a man. And statistics tell us that young black boys become perceived as anywhere from three to six years older than what they actually look like by the time they hit about 10. So I've got maybe a year or two left for my little boy to be that cute kid versus that scary kid who might be wearing a hoodie and has Skittles in his pocket. Yeah. And that's terrifying. I hear you. I mean, in terms of you know, where you live, where your kids go to school, being in a predominantly white community and school, I would imagine that a lot of people feel like, oh, in this environment, you know, your family is safe, or maybe this racism doesn't impact you the way that it would if you were in a different school where there was a lot of divisiveness and there were separate groups or such. Um, can you share with us like your perspective on what it's like to be raising Black children in this predominantly white community, neighborhood, school? It has very different challenges, but very, but still really tough ones. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, the thing with racism that is sometimes the hardest as a Black person or a person of color to deal with is when it's subtle versus when it's in your face. In your face, I can call it. I can say, okay, you use the N-word, you pulled out a gun, you did, and it's, you know, that's why with the George Floyd video, I think so many people are glomming onto it because it is so in your face. Eight minutes of that police officer with his knee on this person's neck. The man was already handcuffed. There was no reason for it. There's no, there's just, there's no shaking it. But what about when you're the only black child in your class? And someone brings up a topic about slavery where you're doing history. And then all of a sudden you feel every eye on you in the classroom and it makes you uncomfortable and it makes you feel, you know, just not right in your skin. Or what happens when, you know, there's two kids having a typical kid argument but you're not exactly sure why your kid got in trouble, but the other kid didn't, even though it seemed to be kind of a 50-50 parody on the who was doing what. You know, there's just all these distinctions. When you drive a luxury car and you go to play tennis and someone assumes that you're driving your employer's car and that you're the nanny or feeling like you've got to get dressed up to go into the bank. And I've always done that. Even the birth of both my children, when I lived in just outside of Manhattan and I went into the city for both of them, I got dressed up, put on my jewelry, even though they say you can't have jewelry on, like made sure I was done up because Columbia is both a top institution, but also a community hospital. And I've seen the way they treat some of the women that they think are the community versus how they treat someone that they know is a private patient or a white patient. So I got dressed up, I got diamonded up, and that's how I went to give birth. And then I gave my jewelry and my $300 shoes to my husband and told him to take them home. Again, all these things that like I would never have even thought of. And I think, you know, in terms of the burden, um, the unseen, unfair, the subtleties, the the little ways in which you have to adjust just to survive, just to get some bit of, you know, somewhat fairer treatment. 
It is so eye-opening. And like you said, the stuff that's blatantly out there, the George Floyd murder, like that's clearest day. Like you bring to light here, all the little subtle things, all little subtle ways in which you have to adjust and compromise to try and just be treated like, you know, human is just, mm-hmm. it is really, really eye-opening and disappointing and upsetting yet important to be talking about all at the same time. Hey there, parents. Are you tired of feeling like your kids are in charge at home, negotiating, demanding, and generally calling all the shots? Well, then I have a free resource for you called 10 Steps to Get Back in Charge of Your Kids. Just click the link below to download your own copy. Let's get you back in the driver's seat. So when you've experienced, as you shared, you know, directly shared some of the things experienced by your children, or maybe some of these more subtle ways in which you or your children have experienced racism or bias, have you ever been faced with that directly in front of your children? And how have you handled it in the presence of your children? Have you dealt with it later, not around them? Have you dealt with it while they were with you to kind of model, here's how one sticks up for themselves. How have you handled those incidences that you and your children have been faced with? I'd say a little bit of everything. You know, unfortunately, there are not just issues of, you know, whether or not you want to make a scene, but there are issues of physical and emotional safety that you have to take into consideration on a regular basis. I'll give you a few examples. So we're a ski family. My kids both learned how to ski when I was two. I learned how to ski when I was three. We are all ski bunnies. My daughter, maybe three years ago, was in an advanced level ski class because that's how she's been skiing for (laughs) a long time. And she was, you know, being silly and kind of trying to do some spins or whatever. And she, you know, was falling down. And some other kid started teasing her and was like, ha ha, you can't ski. And so she immediately kind of got up and got her back up a little bit. She's like, no, I'm just goofing off. Like, I belong in this class. And so he kept mocking her and she's, you know, was like, stop. And he then yelled, I don't have to do anything. You're just a stupid black piece of crap. Wow. Ten. Wow. Now, I wasn't there because she was in ski school. I got a call from the ski school and immediate panic because, you know, they only call if there's an issue. And they said, we want you to know that everything's been handled and we sent the boy away already. And I'm like, oh, sent the boy away. What's this? And they explained to me what happened. Evidently, the ski instructor, because the kid said it so loud, (laughs) heard clear as day. So again, thankfully, there was no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Because again, you're also worried about being believed all the time. And so the kid was already gone, which is good because I might have killed him. And Taylor said she got on the phone and sure she was okay, how she felt about it. And I said, you know, do you want mama to get you? Because it was a full day class. And she said, no, I'm not going to let him take this away from me. I love to ski. I'm going to pull myself back together and I want to keep going. You know, and that's kind of part of the lesson that I've tried to give to the kids. Don't let someone else's ignorance steal your joy or your opportunities because you deserve them and you are human and you are here. And if nothing else, you are my babies. So I've worked too hard to put you in this position of being able to do these types of things. You know, there was another instance though, we were in the mall and teeny to go to the bathroom and the bathroom was on the upper level and she kind of was like, I really need to go. And it was right before the restaurants were getting ready to open for lunch. And so there was a restaurant, you know, one of those chain ones. And I knew they had a restroom inside the actual restaurant. And um, it was probably 11.55, right? Five minutes before open. And there was already someone at the front taking names, et cetera. And I said, you know, can my daughter and I run into the ladies' room? And she looked us up and down like we were nothing. And she said, no, you cannot come in and use the restroom now. We are not open. And I'm like, looking at the time, like, wow, okay. So as we walked away, Taylor said she didn't like us because we're black. And I said, why do you say that? And she said, mommy, look. And I turned around and a white mother evidently had walked up right behind us 
and also asked to use the bathroom and they ushered them in. I felt the look that the woman had given us and it made me feel so uncomfortable, but I didn't want to cause a scene in the mall. So I just rushed my child away so we could get to the upstairs bathroom and kind of be away from it. But here's my little girl turning around and quickly assessing the situation and seeing something that was so hurtful that we weren't good enough to be allowed into that bathroom. Right. You know, and so you talk to them and you say, not everyone gets it. And we still deserve to be here and deserve the things we have and deserve as much as anyone else. And we just have to keep being good people. Yeah. It's one of those things I can imagine, like the mama bear instinct that must go off all the time, just wanting to protect and stand up for your child. But then again, you're held to like an unfair standard that, oh gosh, you know, oh, here's this mom causing the scene. And oh, that's why we didn't let her into the bathroom, you know? Mm -hmm, Exactly. Right. Right. It's all those things that you're always thinking about. Or do you think about your safety? Are they going to call security and have us ushered out the mall when I'm just here trying to pick out some shoes for the kiddos? In my town, they have a um, police academy for kids. I think it's maybe ages 12 through 15 or something like that. And I had my daughter do it. And a lot of the reason why I wanted her to do it was because it's my intention to be in this community until both my kids are out of high school. You know, for better or for worse, I do like this town. I've got great friends. I love my house. And I wanted her, and eventually I will have her little brother when he's 12, go through the program to know all the police officers in town. And very strategically, not only do I want them to know them, but I want the police officers to know my children and to know that they belong here, that when they see my kid hanging out in front of the bagel shop on a late night, which most of the other white kids in town might do, that my kid belongs here just as much as every other kid. And ironically, my daughter won cadet of the program. She was the top cadet and she's actually became quite popular. And every year we hold a charity lemonade stand for St. Jude's and it's gotten bigger and bigger. In the past few years, every police officer on duty comes by and takes a picture with my daughter and they send the fire department. And last year we had three trucks. (laughs) We had probably about 16 cops at one point in time. And my boyfriend said, wow, babes, in another world, this would make me incredibly uncomfortable to have this many police officers standing on our front lawn. But I want them to know my babies. Yeah, you've been intentional about making Mm -hmm. sure that your kids are not targeted by those Mm -hmm. who are supposed to be protecting them, which again, another burden that is just so incredibly unfair and hidden. You're bringing up so many interesting points here, Nishay, that point to kind of like ways in which you have to think about protecting your children and, you know, basically being held, like we are saying, to unfair standards. What are ways in which you address culture and cultural identity with your children to ensure that they're proud? I know you've talked some about making sure that they know they're beautiful and that to not let comments and like the portrait that was drawn of your daughter, not let those things sink in become their reality and what they feel about themselves. So what other things do you do to address culture and cultural identity with your children to ensure that they're proud of their race, their culture, and don't feel a need to try and have to change or assimilate or do anything other than just be who they are? You know, it's a work in progress, Bevan. There are, there are days where I'm not even, I, I don't feel like I'm doing enough because certainly there are days where they look at themselves and, and only seem to see their differences. I can say, though, that we belong to an organization called Jack and Jill, which is an organization for mothers of color that gets their kids together for, you know, cultural exposure, as well as, you know, does community service work and things of that nature. Very large national organization. I graduated out of it. My mother was a Jack and Jill mom, and I was a Jack and Jill kid growing up through it. So while you knew me, I was in Jack and Jill. And one week in a month, I was doing an activity with other Black kids. And 
you know, it's based geographically. So, you know, you can be in groupings with kids that are probably in, you know, similar areas or doing similar things. So we do that. I'm also a member of a historically Black sorority. And so I try and get them out to Alpha Kappa Alpha kind of activities or events. You know, my friends here in town, or as I call them, the white mommies, um, know when I say, oh, I've got a black mommy thing this weekend, because I'm very transparent about it. And they're like, oh, okay, which one is that? Is that that Jack and Jack and who's its thing? Or is that just your group? You know, like I very intentionally make sure that I kind of have black mom friends. And my daughter loves to read. And, you know, Amazon has been a great resource for, you know, books for black girls. <laughs> type that in and, you know, age bracket. And so most of her free pastime reading has been that. She picked up some things when we went down to the African-American Museum, you know, the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C., which is, my God, it's an experience. And I recommend it to any and everyone. You know, and we just talk about things. And I'm, I'm very blunt and I'm really transparent. And, you know, we'll joke about white stuff, black stuff, and try and keep it light, but making sure that they feel good about who we are. Yeah. As you kind of said at the beginning, and when you're talking to your kids, like it's not your job to educate other people. It's not your job. And I know that there's this term that's newer to me, but it's because it's not something that I've had to experience, which is this term of emotional labor. And the idea that those who are constantly being called on oftentimes at work, but also I imagine within, you know, groups, like you said, you have a lot of white parent friends that you are interacting with. And I imagine there's a lot of questions and a lot of times that you've been called on to kind of do the work of explaining things kind of much like we're doing this conversation. And so I'm just curious your perspective in terms of your work, your relationships, your friendships, your interactions with fellow parents, like how much right now versus in the past are you being called on to answer questions? And what are your honest feelings about that? Well, certainly it's ticked up. <laughs> That's for sure. But I'd also say I've always been the kind of person who invites it also. Like you said, I was in debate. I did that through college. That's how I was recruited for the hat. So my mouth is real. And I am blunt with my friends. I'll talk about different things. I remember telling someone, you know, I was like, ooh, girl, I saw on Black Twitter. And one of my mom friends is like, wait, there's a separate Twitter for Black people? And I was like, oh, Lordy, okay. So let's talk about this. And one of my other friends was there who's also white, but probably grew up in a Blacker environment that I did. And she's like, no, 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 let me explain. This is just a term. And so she actually did it for me, which was awesome. And, you know... I, I will admit now it's almost kind of a joke for me sometimes. I will make certain comments knowing that one or two of my friends in particular will have no clue what I'm saying. And then they'll give me the look and they're like, all right, Nishé, this is another Black thing, isn't it? And I'm like, yes, it is. Let's go. And that's almost fun for me, <laughs> I will admit. You know, but more seriously, certainly there's a tick up, but I almost feel like it's every 10 years or so now, there's a thing. And we kind of hope this will be the thing that changes the thing. And maybe it'll get a little bit better. Maybe it won't. I mean, when you and I were in school together, Rodney King happened. And I remember starting freshman year at Northwestern and I was super excited and I'd gone to an all white school. So I was used to white folks. And I was in a dorm that was predominantly white and first week or two, kind of all the dorms tend to hang out together. And I remember going into the big calf and someone, another Black student, upperclassman, walked past me and said, hey, do you want to come sit at this back table with us? And I looked over and it was a group of all Black students. And I said, oh, in my mind, I don't segregate. Why should I have to segregate myself? And I said, oh, no, thanks. I'm sitting with my dorm. And she looked at me and she said, uh-huh, okay. And so she went and sat down. I sat down, we're going around the dorm table and everyone's saying where they're from. And I said, I'm from LA. And someone said, oh, did you loot in the riots with the rest of your people? And I said, alrighty then. Picked up my tray, got up, went to the black table. They had left a space for me anticipating my arrival. Like, oh, it's just a matter of time. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, and I remember thinking, okay, I'm sitting here. And then also remember thinking, you know something? It's cool to sit here. 
and I did sit at the black table a lot in undergrad, don't get me wrong, mm-hmm. but I shouldn't have to. And I remember at a later point having a conversation with that kid who also had some pretty interesting words about affirmative action and how I had taken the place of a more qualified student who was in fact a friend of his that didn't get in. And I started listing off my credentials. And then I said, now you tell me if your friend is actually more qualified than I am. And he just shook his head and walked away because the answer was he wasn't. And, but the answer also is why did I have to prove it? Absolutely. So there are times when the burden for me is more improving my worth Mm -hmm. rather than explaining something. I don't mind explaining. I don't mind genuine questions. I don't mind telling my girlfriend what a boo is or that there isn't actually a separate black Twitter or, you know, giving her information about a song or jokes about, you know, a black woman's figure or any of that kind of stuff. Have at it all day long. I can talk history. I can talk politics. I've got it. But I resent having to explain to someone how it is that I can afford my house because no one else gets asked on my street how it is that they can afford their house. I'm the only one. That I resent. That I'm tired of. I'm tired of worrying. My boyfriend and I both travel extensively for work. He also has his own company. And I'm tired of worrying when he's in different places about his safety. I am tired of knowing that there's going to come a time and no matter how hard I've worked, how much education I have, how hard I have driven to be in one of the safest communities in America, that I will still fear for my children's safety when they leave the house in a way that no one else on my block will fear. And that that sucks. It hurts my heart. Talk about exhausting and there's never a break. It's only, like you said, going to become harder and scarier as your kids continue to grow up. Yeah. So for white parents and non-black people of color parents who are determined to be allies and accomplices and raise anti-racist children, is there anything that you know, you've covered so much, but is there anything else that you would like us to know, a message or just something that you, you kind of not mentioned yet that you think would really help and be enlightening? Be aware and know that my expectation is not for any one of my friends to fix it or to be perfect. But what I do expect is to be heard. And I say that in a way that is extremely meaningful because of this. As a human being, when your experience is not validated, it takes something away from you. It chips away at your emotional stability. It really just damages your soul. If you feel as though even if someone can't, you know, it's like having a cut. Now. I'm not expecting someone to walk around with a Band-Aid. I'm not expecting someone to have a suture kit. But I damn well am expecting you to see the cut and to know that I have experienced a pain. And to not just tell me simply because the cut didn't happen to you, you didn't see the cut happen, or you can't fix the cut, that my cut isn't real. And... When I think about my daughter and my son and some of the things that they've experienced and some of the things that I've experienced growing up, and then you share your experience with someone, they say, well, couldn't it just been that you were in the wrong place at the wrong time? Couldn't it have just been your imagination? Couldn't that picture have just been, you know, the fact that the little boy couldn't find a brown crayon, so he drew dark black And he doesn't know how to draw ponytails. Couldn't it be that that police officer was new or misread the radar or something or he wasn't really being rude? No. Maybe my experience was my experience. Maybe I got pulled over for driving while black. 
and the police officer scared the crap out of me. Maybe that kid was raised in a home with racist images. So when they drew that nasty picture of my daughter, it came from the fact that he was raised in a household where those type of images were okay. Sometimes you just have to be seen and heard and validated because when you are not, the pain is almost greater. And then it becomes the kind of rage that you see. There was a woman and John Oliver had her at the end of one of his programs and she was talking about why Black people are bringing down the communities. And she said, we don't own it. I've been enraged. You've been killing us. You've been doing all these things and you're telling, asking me why the street got burnt down or the street where we lived. I don't own this either. There is an issue of institutionalized trauma. It is passed down trauma. People talk about all of this is, you know, in the past, it's history. People who were against school integration are still alive. They are your parents and your grandparents. They are still teaching how they feel to their children and their grandchildren. So don't tell me that just because slavery was 200 years ago, that it's all good now. It's just not. And it's going to take as many years and a lot of intention for things to get better. But in the meantime, if you want to consider yourself a white ally, someone who is unbiased, don't tell me you don't see color because you do. And I want you to see it because my black is beautiful. And that's what I tell my children. That's so true. It's so true. The whole idea behind don't seeing trouble is an insult in and of itself. Yeah. 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 The color is here. It's real. I see your color. Of course you see mine. And I don't mind you acknowledging it, but do it in a way that is respectful and allows me to be seen as a human being just like you. And when we talk to our children, don't teach this colorblindness because let's face it, kids say the darndest things. And when you don't educate them, you're going to have some kid who walks up to another kid because, you know, They might not have seen a Black person until they go to pre-K or their twos or threes programs and say, that girl. Mm -hmm. And well, I don't mind that as long as it doesn't come with, I don't know, the N-word. Like my son was called in pre-K. Unbelievable. Yeah. So teach respect, teach differences, and engage. Don't just, you know, just because, you know, Perfect example, I heard someone say, oh, well, that's a Black author, like in terms of why their kid isn't reading a book. So I should only read Black authors and you should only read white authors? That doesn't make sense to me. Why aren't we just authors and here's different perspectives? Embrace all of them. Yeah. So kind of to wrap up this conversation, Shay, just bottom line here, this increased interest in Black Lives Matter movement and anti-racist books and media and, you know, on a global scale and particularly here in the U.S., does this give you hope? Are you skeptical? Oh, I'm entirely skeptical, but a little hopeful. Um, You know, I'm hoping for political change because it starts with leadership, just like it starts at the head of the family. So, You, mom, dad, you're the president of the household and the president of our American household is not reflecting this well. So in that piece, I'm hopeful. I am hopeful in that allies, to me, an ally isn't just someone who silently goes along and is not racist, but an ally is someone who speaks up. And so for me, I actually feel like it's more important when white folks go to rallies and because at the end of the day, I've been wanting you to treat me fairly forever. (laughs) So until it's uncomfortable for white America and white America says, we don't like other people to be treated differently than us, things aren't going to change. So, you know, I'm hopeful in that people will be more vocal. There'll be a few more kids that know more, that grow up with a better perspective There'll be a few more adults that practice acts of kindness in a way that is intentionally inclusive. 
but do I believe that, you know, I'm going to wake up in America <laughs> in a week, a month, a year, five years from now? And, you know, I won't have the same worries for my kids that I do today. Mm -hmm. Absolutely not. Yeah. I have a friend of mine, African-American father, and he said, you know, I was hoping I wasn't going to have to have, you know, the talk with my mm -hmm. children. And I do. And so now I can only hope that my children won't have to have it with their children. And gosh, wouldn't that be an incredible outcome? But I understand you're being skeptical of this and feeling like, gosh, here we still are you know, again and again and again. Yeah. So I'm glad to hear a bit of hopefulness, but also a reality check that like, yeah, well, let's wait and see. Yeah. I mean, it's going to take a lot yeah. and time. And so for me, every parent that decides that they are going to intentionally raise their children in a manner that is reflective of the world that we live in today, the many different hues the many different beliefs, the many different, you know, sexualized and to be embracing of that and not in a, we just love everybody way, because I think that that's just naive. And unless you call out who you love and call out who is right, you're not telling your children anything. It's too sterile and blank of a message. And so you have to be intentional. We treat Black people fairly. We treat Asian people fairly. We treat Hispanic people fairly because we are all human beings and we all have the same worth and call their names. Say their names. Absolutely. Well, Nishay, thank you so much for lending your voice to this conversation, this podcast. I know I've learned more. And, you know, this is just one of many conversations that we need to be having out there and definitely with our families. So thank you so much for coming on the 3D Parent Podcast today. Well, you're welcome. And thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for tuning in this week to the 3D Parent Podcast. I hope it has provided you with the inspiration you need for building stronger relationships with your children and trusting your instincts when it comes to parenting. If you have a parenting question you'd like answered on the podcast, or if you'd like one-on-one -on -one parent coaching, head over to the3dparent.com and click the contact tab to send me your question. If today's discussion empowered your parenting, please be sure to subscribe to the show, leave a rating and a review. Also, I'd love to connect with you on social media so take a screenshot, share it on your Instagram stories, and tag me at The3DParent. I look forward to meeting you here again next week on The3D Parent Podcast.